welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, listeners. This is Kathleen Hallisey here for HJ Talks About Abuse. Thanks for joining us today. I'm thrilled to have with me a really special guest who's a hero of mine, Ian Ackley, who is going to introduce himself and, and tell you a little bit about who he is and what he does. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, everybody. I'm just, my name's Ian Ackley, and I'm a survivor of abuse in football. I first disclosed my abuse back in 94, so I've been around, I suppose, this sort of landscape for a number of decades. Along that path and journey, I set up a charity for survivors and then moved on to my current role, which is a survivor support advocate and work out of the PFA wellbeing department where I support any survivor of abuse in football, uh, any form of abuse, and offer particular bespoke interventions and support and advocacy services and help people through the reporting process if necessary, as well as giving an ear as a survivor to those people. And we know each other, Ian, because we have actually worked very closely together. Obviously, I could tell the listeners a bit about that, but I wonder if you want to kind of share from your perspective how we started working together and what that looked like. Yeah, we absolutely have worked together. And I think, in my opinion, exceptionally well. It was, as you know, from a common client that we had, what we realized, first of all, was we'd need some permissions from the client in order to be able to sort of join up the working we were doing. And once we'd got that, the notion of joining that work up and and making sure we all understood what the client wanted, where they were, what they were able to access, I think really helped the client in that process and understand and manage what was in front of them and how to, to deal with that. And, and in my experience, it was quite unique when we first got to work with each other, but I found it hugely beneficial. Just the notion of other professionals and concerned adults being able to work together in a cohesive way without duplicating or repeating what was happening, but also keeping the client really central to that process and them understanding that we work for them. And I think for that particular client, and many clients and survivors feel a vulnerability going through this process. I think it helped them really show that they weren't just a group of random adults or professionals there to help them, but that we genuinely there were all for that person's best interests. And that, that client's interests were the main thing that we kept central in that process. And it really was the most important thing. And I think that client really reflected that in that they showed that they felt like they had a team of people for them that all sang from the same hymn sheet rather than a load of random people trying to take maybe control away from them, help them maintain control of and feel like they had control of what was going on. So for me, it's a hugely, hugely beneficial first experience of joined up working. And that's without going into any real detail of what some of those benefits actually were, both professionally and personally. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel completely the same. And obviously you and I have have talked about this before outside of a podcast, but, you know, one of the best experiences of my professional life as a a lawyer and solicitor of working with you in a joined up working way to support a particularly vulnerable person. And, you know, I think we've talked about how 
this particular individual was quite vulnerable and really did require a kind of team approach from you and I and and other people who were involved, but that this is something we could think about applying in other cases where maybe people don't have the same level or extent of vulnerabilities, but understanding that they are a survivor and victim of abuse and that they might need a kind of team approach to to being supported, maybe not as intensive as, as you and I had in that particular case, but also a way forward for survivors. And I wonder what you think about that, whether this is something that's possible to roll out as a way of working across the board. A hundred percent, obviously, with permissions granted by the person and individual, I, I would always say that joining up the work and having concerned professionals and adults in a person's life, all understanding what that person was going through and experiencing in a joined up way, helps manage it for that individual person and the other important people in their lives. Because if we want the best thing for that person, we need to understand what the right leg's doing, the left hand's doing, the right arm, and so on and so forth. And yeah. if we don't connect the bits up and we all work in silos, we chance are we're all working for very with very good intentions, but we might actually be causing conflict for the client in things we're suggesting or the way forward of things that we're trying to resolve for them. And if we all have a better understanding of what the person's like and which directions they're being pulled in, we can hopefully align some of those matters and deal with them also in a priority order that the client wishes for them to be dealt with. Because as a survivor myself, I've often said this, that once you disclose your abuse and you, you go forward with either criminal or civil litigation, it's very much like having to face being that small child again. I would always recommend where possible people engage in therapeutic intervention or counselling that where the limits allow through that process because it can very much remind you of being like feeling like that small, helpless child, that all of the other people in the room are the adults in the room. They're the ones that make the decisions on your behalf and tell you that it's in your best interest without really having a, an understanding of what that means and the consequence. And so I think an advocacy role, such as my own, as an impartial eye and ear, having experience on, on those landscapes to advocate for, for a client should they need it, and a group of concerned professionals where the client's interests are the centre of everyone's hearts and, and the process. For me, I can see huge amounts of benefits and I, I'm failing to see the negatives. And I, if I'm struggling to focus on what could be a negative on this, it's all, it's all done in agreements, it's all done with transparency and openness. Yeah. And how can it not be a good thing and a better use of resources and people's time as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you said something at the, at the very beginning, which was that, you know, with the correct permissions. And I think from my experience there, and, and we did have this happen in this particular situation that you and I were dealing with at one point of an external party being very concerned about confidentiality and not sharing information with us, which is not what we were asking for. But there can sometimes, I think, be a hesitation and a concern on professionals' parts, such as you and I, professionals like us, that, you know, we need to make sure that we have client permissions and we shouldn't be saying anything or sharing anything. But I think what you and I were able to do was an example of a great example of where if we let go of that a little bit, we ensure that we get the correct permissions, obviously, because we're professionals and we need to make sure that we do that. But once we've done that and the client has agreed to that because that's what they want, then actually it's a really good way that we can support the client and work together to get the best possible outcome for them. 
100%. And I couldn't agree more, Kathleen. I, I always think as well that when we create that environment, and this is, I think, for me, a really significant part, is too often since the introduction of GDPR, it, it, GDPR has been used as something to hide behind, to not share information on the basis that, it, you know, it's private and confidential. But as we know, GDPR is meant to create a safe framework to operate within. And once we have permissions in essence and in, in principle, then actually, even if a client says, oh, no, I'm not quite sure, in order to safeguard the client and ourselves, as we know, safeguarding principles supersede GDPR every single time. And so we can create a safer, not a sterile, safe environment, but a safer space to be able to develop positive working environments, which is, again, I say it over and over, because it is absolutely central to this, and that's that it's the client's best interests that are at heart and that's central to this process. Yeah, and I just absolutely. think that that's a really important bit to to understand about this process that you know we're not constrained by it that this should give us the freedom professionally to be able to operate in a far more effective and we look at the wider picture far more cost effective way because we get more bang for our buck yeah no absolutely i was thinking i wondered if you had obviously let me back up for a minute you know i think that with the work that you do is amazing and i have with various clients referred them to you and uh, you very kindly always respond to text messages from me at whatever time to say, is it okay if I pass on your information? And I've kind of gently nudged clients to, to get in touch with you because you're such a fantastic resource um, and also can help them and signpost them to other services as well. But I think in some ways how obviously unlucky to have to use your services, but equally how lucky to have somebody like you in this role and that it isn't something that I know of that exists in any other arena and that it would be amazing if it did. How could we make that happen and what would that look like? Well, thank you, first of all. That's very kind of you to say so. Humbly, I believe that this service could be transposed into not only any other sport, but any other setting. As with most things, when it's about a people forward-facing service, 75, 80% of what you do remains the same, about 25 to 20% you would need to tweak according to the setting, the discipline, or whatever it is. But the principles of it, I think, uh, are easily replicated. The, the one thing I'd like to see, which would make it much easier, this notion of corporate responsibility, whereby you know the, those that make profit out of things are happy to do so. But out of those profits, could they not recognize just a tiny, weeny, teeny, wincy percentage of acknowledgement to say things don't always go too good and as such we'd like to contribute to the idea of redress education and, and so on and, and information awareness raising and so on and i think if each individual sector or sport wanted to it could find a mechanism in order to be able to finance and fund this type of service and yes football is very privileged in that it is one of the if not that it is the the, the biggest revenue stream out of any sport. However, I do believe we could use this as an example of a standard. And there may have to be diluted variants of it in the first instance, but I would argue that any support as an and an advocacy service is better than none, no matter how limited or wide your signposting capabilities to other resources. The reason I do this job and the reason I still do this job today and I want to carry on doing this and see it spread further, is because every single day as a survivor, 
I recognize how fortunate I am to have a family and a partner around me that stood by me and actually how much burden this journey has been on them. And I reflect back on that and think, what if I had had an advocate, someone to show me the way, someone to support me through those really dark times before any of these services existed? Well, I'm pretty confident that it would have made the world of difference to both me and my family. And even now, ironically, there isn't an Ian to support Ian. Yeah. And the the, the irony there sometimes in my life where I think, God, you know, I could do with a little bit of that. Yeah. And that's actually what drives me forward. It's so shocking that there's a lack of this human empathy and understanding and willingness. And I think the only real thing that's holding it back is the will to do it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not that it's not possible. It's not. It's not fundamentally or logistically impossible. It's about is there a will for different sports, different sectors, whatever that is like or wherever, to offer advocacy and support services to adults in a humble, humanized way that recognizes we're emotional creatures as well as these functioning beings. You know, we're human beings, but we spend most of our lives as human doings. Yeah. And maybe we should stop. <laughs> human doing so much and concentrate on the human beings of us and, and, and I think advocacy and support particularly for those vulnerable and going through landscapes that they don't understand it is I personally think something that a huge amount of people could benefit from and I don't think that'd be a bad thing no absolutely and I think for our listeners just to so everyone understands there's ISFAs, which are independent sexual violence advisors, which would advocate and help people who are going through the criminal process. But there isn't anybody who would help a client through the civil process. And just and even if they didn't want to go through a civil process, just provide that kind of support. And that's essentially what Ian does is just is providing support to survivors of abuse. Your role exists because, well, not because, but you work for the PFA, but you've really blazed a trail in creating this role. And as you blazed the trail, you've you've kind of created the prototype. So it should be something that, as you say, could be rolled out to other sectors and services. We saw that there was a headline on the BBC yesterday about the first abuse case in British gymnastics that's been resolved. I would imagine that there would probably be plenty of survivors in gymnastics that could use someone like you and also many other sports, rugby, cricket. <laughs> uh, I think it's worth saying, you know, and recognizing that there are lots of me's all over the place. I am not mm. a unique human being. And I may have a particular skill set and background of, you know, statutory services and legal services and so on. They've really, really helped me. But there's not to say that there aren't a, a good number of people out there that would fit the criteria or be able to be upskilled to fulfill similar roles. And it may be that, you know, this could be taken in, into a legal firm. It could be taken into a corporate setting. It could be taken into a sporting setting. And even though I think you would have to transpose the service into it, it's really important you recognize the value of different types of lived experiences. And just for the listeners to understand, when I was recruited into this role, it was unique in so much as, as well as other things but unique in so much as I was specifically recruited because in part of my lived experience, I went through an incredibly robust recruitment process and made sure that it was the most up-to-date policies and procedures applied to that so that no one from outside could say, well, this is just a survivor being given a job, as well as having the right professional background to start with. And I think if you do make sure that people are recruited in the right way, not they have to have the full gamut of qualifications or experience, but they're recruited in the right and the safe way that actually 
that a huge amount of work can be done, but the lived experience within that sector is really vitally important. And that's the uniqueness of this as well, in that that is something that adds value in the middle ground. But the only way that I've been able to do it is actually by engaging through therapeutic interventions in the first instance and taking care of myself. So we've got a whole load of things to consider when looking at suitability and and how you'd actually recruit into these roles. But in the same breath, I think that the notion of the lived experience employed professionally alongside the right background and support mechanisms is quite an exciting landscape to consider no matter what your line of work, whether it's a legal profession or not. And certainly it is a very much, like you say, an ISVA type of role, but to expand it outside of those very finite constraints, I do think that is something that hasn't really happened yet. Yeah, absolutely. But it's huge potential for it. No, definitely. And I do think the lived experience was really helpful to me with my clients where I know they felt really alone and that they were the only one and they were embarrassed and ashamed and all those feelings that we know. I could say to them, Ian really gets it, you know, because you do have a lived experience and you are a disclosed survivor. There was great weight and gravitas of me being able to say that. And I think making clients comfortable and getting in touch with you and getting the services and support that I know that they really, really needed, but were kind of pushing against because of all those really complicated feelings that survivors of abuse have. And so, you know, I completely hear what you're saying about it. You know, you need to have the necessary therapeutic interventions and you need to obviously be in the right place yourself. And there has to be a robust recruitment, but I think it would be amazing if your role could be replicated in other fields, other sports, other industries with somebody from with a lived experience, because we know based on the data, there's a lot, a lot of people with a lived experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, and there's a huge amount of value in there, huge amount of learning, huge amount of value. And yeah, one of the biggest feedbacks I get is being thanked for just giving an ear. Actually, my service in majority is signposting two other services. I'm a translator or a conduit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm happy to be so. And look, we, we, I always say as a, a, a disclosed abuse survivor, we are members of the worst private members club in the world. Yeah. A, a club that no one wishes to be a member of and that you cannot give your membership card away. You're a life member, whether you like it or not. And, and I think that just having been through the criminal processes, the civil processes, and been around for, what, since what, 94, nearly, nearly 40 years or whatever it is, 40 years since my abuse when I was 13, anyway, nearly four decades, I just think that we're all in silos. It's not something you go, I can, you ever got a problem with wanting to clear a room? Invite me around. <laughs> I'll come and I'll just talk about my experience of abuse. And you watch them go home really quickly and yeah. never contact you ever again. It's, yeah. it, it's a very awkward, uncomfortable subject. I get that. I really do get that, that it's difficult. But because of that, we tend to not want to talk about it and it's not comfortable but we have to we have to absolutely have to so creating not like i say a sterile safe but a safer environment where sometimes and often can be the first time that someone talks to somebody else openly candidly as another survivor without being judged and without being feeling like that uh, someone's got an opinion about you it can be really quite a cathartic experience for people and you know and it helps them i think realize that you can trust other adults 
there is a way to engage with organisations and institutions that isn't going to be like it was previously. And that can really help. And something we're not talking about something, another subject altogether, but that healing journey for a survivor. As a conscientious professional, you could either be a really big positive part of that or you can be a barrier to that. And, and actually, a lot of that is choice on about how you view it. And so for the survivor, I think that's a really important part that they want to not be treated like a child, but equally have an arm around them often to, to go through that process and try and at least understand that landscape a little bit more than they do. And when someone feels angry, that someone else to legitimize that or, or you know, if they're upset and say, it's okay because it's okay to be angry or upset, you know, and, and just that part of it, I think, is something. Because otherwise, I think if there isn't a lived experience and a professional sometimes tries to be empathetic, you can have it thrown back in your face that how, how can you possibly understand what I'm trying to say? Whereas if actually working in partnership with someone that is and does have a lived experience, because the one thing that a survivor can't say to me is you don't understand we can have a very then candid conversation about understandings, about not realising civil justice, criminal justice, and et cetera, and so on, and managing that. And that, I think, is it's not very often that you can have those conversations. It's certainly very difficult as a professional to even think about having those type of conversations with the survivors and, hey, let's be balanced and reasonable about this. I mean, yeah. and, and, and I'm just sometimes able to have those conversations, which, again, I think when the language is chosen correctly and it, the language is positively reinforced, it's not blaming, it can help just somebody manage their expectations about what to expect going forwards. And so we don't want to understand this landscape, but we have to, right? So joining up the work, doing it in a transparent and, and centric way, which is client-focused. Uh, I think, like I said previously, I, I can see many, many benefits of which I could talk for hours and hours and hours about the specific details. And I fail to see any real drawbacks as long as the right situation is created with permissions and, and, and the framework is safe, like I said previously. Absolutely. I, I can't think of a negative myself. And, and you know, as we said at the outset, one of the most positive, if not the most positive experience I've, I've had as a professional working with other professionals, just fantastic, was a real learning experience for me, but also just inspired me for what we might be able to do going forward in the future of, of working with other professionals that, that do the same type of work that we do, different roles we each have, but how actually we can work together to keep the client at the center of everything that we're doing. And, and then also as professionals, support each other and make sure we're getting the best outcome for them. But Ian, it's been absolutely amazing to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk to us. I'm sure that our listeners would probably love to hear from you again. So if I can be quite cheeky and see if I could ask you to come back another time and talk to us, maybe about something else. I don't know. You and I always seem to find things to talk about. Of course, Kathleen, you know that I admire the work you do as a professional and, you know, I, I concur. I think we're in a great working relationship and if I can help add further value to the fantastic work you already do, then I'm more than happy to come back. As long as I'm not turning your listeners away and boring <laughs> them to death, then of course, yes, let, let me know. We'll have a chat offline and uh, I'm sure we can sort something out for, for the future going forwards. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian. And um, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. 
If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.